Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon and hope you're enjoying the 2021 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Jack Glassberg, and I'm a first-year MBA student at MIT Sloan, and it's my pleasure to introduce our panel, Select Your Fighter, How to Assess Players and Build an Esports Roster. Our panelists today are Greg Kim, Director of Esports at Evil Geniuses, Tal Shahar, former Chief Digital Officer at Immortals, Doug Watson, Head of Esports Insights at Riot Games, and Emily Rand, analyst at the League Championship Series. Our panel will be moderated by Ryan Friedman, former Chief of Staff at Dignitas. The panel will run for 35 minutes and we will leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Please use the chat on the right side of the window for discussions during the panel and the Q&A option also on the right to submit questions to our panelists. You can also share questions on Twitter using the hashtag ForFunRegion. Questions will be then selected by the moderator. With that, I'll turn it over to Ryan. Thanks. Um, yeah, I love the hashtag ForFunRegion, by the way. That's definitely going to be the highlight of this panel. Yikes. <laughs> um, cool. So I'm super stoked to be on this panel with y'all. Um, I think this is going to be super interesting. And there's a lot to talk about regarding, you know, roster building and, and data analytics place within that in esports. Um, as chief of staff at Dignitas and before that at the Houston Rockets own Clutch Gaming, uh, we tried to implement a lot of data analytics into our roster building processes, but just due to the like kind of nascent industry uh, and, and the fact that there wasn't a lot of precedent for, for data analytics in esports, like we didn't have a ton of success, frankly. Um, but y'all have been doing it, you know, more comprehensively and, and to, to a more recent date than I ever did. So curious kind of about y'all's thoughts at a high level on data analytics' place in roster building, scouting, et cetera, in esports today. Uh, Doug, why don't we start with you? Sure, thanks, Ryan. And thanks to the folks here at Sloan for making this great conference come together. It's uh, great to be back here. Um, esports is a, a really incredibly young industry. Uh, and it's one where there's a lot of opportunities for infrastructure development, including analytics. And I think we're starting to see analytics from a, a roster development perspective start to gain uh, traction and to really uh, become a, a rapidly pull for a number of teams and organizations around the sport. But uh, from the league and, and publisher side, our view is that we can keep progressing that faster. We want to develop more talent, develop more pros to get better tools here. So our aspiration is to ensure that the data that is behind the game gets out and that we can encourage use of it across the teams and the broader community to make this a, a reality and apply analytics at a faster pace than we've seen in even uh, traditional sports, so. Yeah, it makes sense. Um... You know, Greg, I know, I know you as well have done uh, kind of a lot of work with trying to build up your internal analytics department. And I'm sure a lot of the stuff that Doug's been doing has been very helpful with that. How, how about you? What, how do you feel about 
Yeah, I, it it definitely like dovetails with what Doug said, and uh, you know the the team to game publisher relationship is a really important one in this because the data availability depends on like what Riot can pull from the games to to get to us to help make those decisions. But I think in terms of how we leverage data analytics and player scouting and roster building, it's certainly a tool that we use, but it's early days. I think um, we're we're in a state where we're leveling up the type of data that we can ingest and like how we process that data, how we frame it and, and how we build insights off of it. Um, but I would say it's just one of the many tools that we use, I think, uh, alongside the data, um, you know, video review is a huge element of what we do, just seeing how the players play um, in matches on the rift. And the other element of this, just being a team sport and particularly like in this, in, in the recent League of Legends metas, like how a team works together and like how, how you think a team culture is gonna develop and player motivation is a huge asset, so, uh, a huge, huge variable. So I think um, it's one of the tools, it's one that we're learning more about. It's one that we hope to incorporate more, but uh, for now, it's just one of the tools that's somewhat informative alongside of many other evaluation um, elements that we bake into player scouting. It's definitely improved over the past several years, right? Like I'd say so. Like, upward. yeah. And like, you know, one of the things that we got our hands on more recently, for example, is per second data, right? Like that stuff's amazing. You can start to build more positional perception and build more advanced type of stats, um, and ways to evaluate players off of it rather than just some of the counting stats and the basic level things. It's kind of like, I guess, like adding um, all the positional data to MBA and all like the, I guess, was it the second spectrum cams to like the league? It's, it's kind of like that level of um, addition for us. And, you know, I think we're, we're happy to have our hands on it and we're constantly thinking about how to integrate it better. Yeah, makes total sense. Emily, I know you have thoughts on this as well. Yeah, so I think the biggest challenge in trying to use data and apply it to players is having it provide context without being like, okay, you know, these counting statistics to, to Greg's point, because a lot of the data we have right now is still uh, just counting statistics like, uh, you know, kills to death ratio, like uh, creep score per minute, that kind of thing. Um, and trying to apply it to looking at the player from a more holistic perspective combining it with uh, video data and stuff like that. I know when I first started doing any sort of uh, data and like statistical breakdowns, I like came in and I was like, yeah, I'm going to create a war statistic for players and it's going to be great. Uh, and even breaking it down like just to one position. So like I chose 80 carry because I thought that would be the easiest thing to do because it's the most straightforward position, I think, in League of Legends. There are still so many variables and things change from meta to meta so drastically, even with one patch, uh, never mind from year to year, uh, that I think data is really important for scouting, but it also, you need the video part and you need to understand it in a more holistic context. Yeah, sure that's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that's completely correct. I mean, one, one of the things that I often joke is that like the second S in esports is actually a pretty critical one because esports are plural because they're not monolithic. Um, different esports are very different structurally. Um, and, you know, how easy it is, I think, to uh, sort of utilize data is, is, is different, honestly, across the sport. The same way that you would think that baseball stats are different than NBA stats, and it's easier perhaps to uh, do analysis with baseball than, than soccer. Um, that's definitely true across different esports. Um, and, you know, part of it that I also think about is, 
I think we've been getting a lot better on the R&D side, if you will, of, of analytics and creating better data packages, um, getting more our hands on more data. Um, I think we're still very much in the early days on the like implementation um, and sort of almost like commercialization, if you will, of data as it applies to roster building. Um, and so, you know, Ryan, you, you sort of talked about like trying to be, uh, you know, push the boundaries in the early days. Um, I think we've built on that, but quite frankly, I think like overall as an industry, we still have a long way to go to even take advantage of what we already have today. Like I think, you know, candidly, like most teams are not yet as sophisticated at utilizing and, and, um, and coaches even also at utilizing data um, the way that we probably will be in a couple of years um, as well. Do you think that's a lack of manpower? Like, do you think if, if teams hired full-time data analyst staff that we could solve for some of that? You know, I think, um, look, I, I think there's, of course, like part of it is just like the history of sort of sports suggests that over time, you know, you get more and more data and analytics focused folks into positions and roles, um, you know, particularly more senior in an organization. And it kind of fuses with sort of the more traditional, for lack of a better word, uh, you know, talent evaluation methodologies. Um, and you make a lot of headway there. So, uh, you know, we're sort of probably in the early days of that. So I, I think there is a talent piece to it. Um, I also just think, quite frankly, that it's it's just a like we're so nascent and early that there's so many variables, as Greg mentioned, that go into building a great roster that like it, it's it's just we're we're getting better across almost all of those variables of talent evaluation. We still have a long way to go, so it's it just shouldn't be a shock or a surprise that we're still nascent when it comes to data. I, I know some folks sometimes think, oh, your games, there's so much data, you guys should be way ahead, but. You know, if you think about the like history and arc of building teams, um, we're, we're still so new at this um, in this space that it sort of makes sense that it wouldn't be as robust as it might be in more traditional sports. At least that's my perspective. And I think even if we look back at traditional sports, right, you have different teams that have different approaches that create different focuses of where they want to create that competitive advantage, be it from like how they scout, how do they develop talent, um, how do they acquire talent that's already existing and where do they put that emphasis? So I think... From an esports perspective, we're still going to see that level of, of granularity also play out, where teams use their analytical capabilities differently. Um, and over time, my expectation is that we'll see some of these best practices, especially as people go from organization to organization and kind of spread the word, um, they'll become baseline, but you'll still have teams that have a different type of focus on different uh, elements of it in order to make sure that they can stay one step ahead and um, win championships. Yeah, I mean, that. that I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, and look, I, Doug, I know you guys have, like Tal was saying, just an enormous amount of data um, and are probably ahead of most of the teams in terms of, of incorporating and, and really understanding that data. Would love to hear a little bit about what you're doing with the uh, amateur scene to encourage player growth um, and try to foster you know, a healthy North American pipeline for players. Uh, and, and would love some of the data behind those decisions, if you can share it. Yeah, uh, that's a great topic. So um, at Riot, when, when we decide to invest into an eSport like League of Legends or with, with Valorant, uh, our focus is on making it a multi-generational sport, which means that we need to have both stars of today as well as a really healthy pipeline of stars of tomorrow that can continue to fuel the sport. And so that really requires a concerted effort across the company, be it from making the game exciting and building um, ways for younger generations to get into the game, but also ways for that talent to develop and to get to the professional level and reach that apex. So for us, when we think about the amateur scene, our view is how do we make sure that we can have uh, talent coming up 
that has the access of a, a path to pro that's easily there and that they can see and can and reach out and touch. Um, and that really varies from region to region for us, especially as we start thinking about cultural differences, legal differences, and other operational components. Um, a great example of this, though, is uh, I think our European development. Um, in Europe, a couple of years ago, we noticed that uh, the there was a, a gap in the talent that was coming up, primarily driven by the fact that if you wanted to compete at the highest level, you had to uproot yourself and move to Germany. And for a lot of you know, 15, 16, 17 year old kids, that was not reasonable to leave their home country, that, to leave and go somewhere else with a different language and to, to live in a different environment. And so our focus at that point was to say, okay, how can we unblock that? And what we focus on is creating regional leagues um, that allow those kids to start developing at a younger age locally, but to have a type of professional competitive experience that they could build up and then build into a higher level league with our European masters. And then to have that talent developed in, up into the LEC, which is now, again, um, gaining a, a lot of uh, uh, international momentum due to that type of talent development. And so um, from a, a Riot perspective, our view is, okay, how can we make sure that we create that type of a framework and develop it across the regions that, again, matches the needs of the region um, and allows the type of talent to, to uh, flourish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in, in North America, that's more so the focus on, uh, like, the scouting grounds, the proving grounds now, right? Um, yeah, exactly. In, in North America, we have different needs. Um, and there's other types of challenges that we're we're facing and looking to run down in North America as well, be it to how we develop talent and how do you make it so that, again, a region that's as large as it is, is able to have talent play consistently and, again, face with similar types of um, needs. And so it's a continual evolution, uh, similar to as it is in Korea and China for us as we take different approaches from uh, league to league. Yeah. Well, Greg, I know you've worked in a bunch of different leagues and a bunch of different regions. Uh, across a bunch of different games, right? And so, like, curious about your thoughts on the differences between um, building development pipelines across various regions, the use of data analytics, if any, in those games. Yeah, I mean, I think it dovetails again. Dovetails exactly with what Doug was saying because we're in the we're an LCS team, right? And and we're we're one of ten teams in North America. North America as a region has its place in the broader League of Legends ecosystem. And uh, to Doug's point, like if we want uh, the league to be successful, if we want to be successful as a team within that league, and just sort of given um, given the current state of salaries and rosters and all the familiar faces we've seen in the LCS, like one of the big pillars of our League of Legends operation this year is that development pipeline. And with all that Riot did this year in shifting the academy system to incorporating amateur play and proving grounds, like I'm, I'm very proud to have had um, a staff and organization that's responded to that by extending our operation into that amateur system. Because, you know, from the team side of it, it's just as important to us, right? Like we want to have the future stars of uh, North America for the sake of the product. And as evil geniuses, we want those future stars to be within our program, right? And like, um, yeah, I, I'm proud to have, I think, be the only LCS org that has had both our academy and amateur team qualify for the elimination stages of the Proving Grounds tournament. I think it took a lot of work and brilliance from my coaching staff and my scouting staff and my and my developmental staff here at EG to to identify those players to some extent leveraging data to some extent you watching a ton of vods and getting a sense for these players and also once we had them in our doorstep like teaching them all these concepts right because i think a big part of this is like um 
when you play when you play esports at a competitive level, it's very different from playing like at home, like in solo queue or with your friends, right? There are just there are many different team concepts, and this applies not just to League but to Valorant and other titles, where you need to learn how to play as a team, you need to learn how to play as a competitive environment, and and you also need to learn how to be a professional and like tweet responsibly and conduct yourself well. And I think the earlier that we can um, the earlier we can bring someone into our system and teach them all those things, the better they're going to be when they get the professional level, um, the better the ecosystem is as a whole. And I, you know, I'm proud to be an org that's contributing back to that and seeing some competitive success along the way. I think we're very excited with our, pro our developmental prospects and bringing them into the fold as the years go by. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all have done phenomenally. Um, I like the mention of tweeting responsibly, by the way. <laughs> I think the best Twitter thread or group or whatever it's called is Shocker Rez's gamer tweets. Oh, those are my just, favorite. Yeah. yeah, he just lists all of the different like just absurd tweets that esports players have put out over the years. Worth worth looking at if you haven't. Um, Emily, I know you as well have thoughts on kind of the the differences and needs between regions in League of Legends for. Um, for like different uh, solutions for player development. Um, you know, you've worked a ton in the LPL and, and we've talked a little bit about how the, the major differences between the LPL and the LCS. So curious your thoughts on, on kind of what those are and what the LCS needs in your perspective. Yeah, so looking at LPL, I think there are a lot of lessons you can take from LPL and then there are a lot of lessons that you have to understand that the LPL is massive um, it's the largest player base. They have over 30 servers in China. Um, and the reason why it became so popular is because, um, you know, it was in a Tencent client called QQ, where basically if you're a kid, you don't have to go bug your parents to uh, use their, their ID number to play a game, right? Like you could just say you're doing your homework and then actually you're playing League of Legends. So um, it was really well advertised. It was really easy for, for young kids to be able to start playing at like really, really young ages. So even in the early days where I think people didn't know how to scout players, they pretty much were just looking at solo rank, um, which is uh, good to some extent, but doesn't tell you what type of player it'll be. It doesn't tell you how they'll do across like different metas or even necessarily what their champion pool is. They might have multiple accounts, stuff like that. Like even just pulling someone off of solo queue requires a lot more context, I, in my opinion, if you want to actually scout them for a team. Uh, solo queue is just one tool to use. Um, but I think in, in China, what you did have really early on in their infrastructure, despite the fact that it wasn't very uh, stable or like uh, uniform across <laughs> across different organizations uh, in terms of how players were uh, you know being treated or how much they were being paid if at all etc. Um, I do think you had a very young player base right off the bat so you had a lot of players starting when they were like you know 12, uh, 13 um, starting to play and then like for example one of the most if not the most famous player in China, uh, Uzi Ai was at Worlds when he was 16 and he was one of the few players that was grandfathered in after they made the rule that you had to be 17. I believe he'd been playing since uh, there were servers in China and he started at like an incredibly young age. Um, and to uh, Greg's point about like bringing up players and bringing them into an organization, um, I think a lot of Chinese teams also had to learn the same lessons where like what kind of 
player do you want? And using Uzi as an example, again, like he's actually come out in interviews and said like, I was a really bad teammate when I was younger because I didn't understand, you know, how to be a teammate. I didn't, I just understood how to play the game. You know, like he understood the fact that he had really good mechanics, that he was incredibly talented, but he didn't really know how to get along with his teammates until later on in his career. So um, I think when I look at League of Legends in their early heyday, especially in China, where you just had this massive influx of player, like a giant player base and trying to wade through that and trying to find people that you actually want for your team. Um, it was really difficult at first. And I mean, solo rank was kind of the only thing initially that people used either in China or how well they were playing on the Korean server, which was kind of the accepted like best server in the world. I think that that point, Emily, is really interesting because it's very different, I think, from a lot of traditional sports where because of the ease of being able to play right on so like, you know, alone in your house. Right. Yeah. Um, like most esports, the way you sort of progress in the early days. Right. Is just that like alone playing in solo queue or the equivalent thereof, you know, in other games um, versus a lot of traditional sports. Like, you know, it's kind of hard for you to play like an 11 v 11 game unless there's some sort of organized, uh, you know, uh, element to it, for example, in soccer and other places. Um, and so, you know, I think that that element of having to teach people how to play as a team is much bigger in esports than it is probably in other sports, um, where there's just already more, particularly in the West, I should say, infrastructure um, from an early age um, around teams and team play and sort of learning these more sort of macro, you know, team concepts. Um, and so I think that's, that's definitely one of the things that's made talent development and identification, I think, more difficult in esports, particularly here. Um, because, you know, as you said, it's so different when you're looking at someone's rank um, on the ladder uh, versus like, that, like, you know, understanding who they are holistically actually as a teammate. Um, and as so, you know, the, the game itself is just so different. Um, and so I think that's a that's a pretty big challenge that we have with esports relative to maybe some other traditional sports. And I certainly think, um, you know, that's particularly perhaps an issue here in North America where. Um, you know, perhaps given player base, perhaps given some of the infrastructure um, and just historical reasons, um, we don't necessarily have some of the same structures in place that you see in Europe and you see in China and elsewhere um, from an earlier age. I also think like, um, and one of the things that I guess I can praise Doug and his team for is that uh, I've been really open about this uh, as uh, from the journalist side that scouting grounds is like actually one of my absolute favorite events. And it's because you fly in a bunch of players who are doing really well in any like solo rank, and then you force them to be on the team together. And as someone who does embeds every year for that event, uh, where you're, when you're sitting in a room and you're watching coaches uh, coach these players and these players kind of learn how do you get along with each other? And also just even basic stuff, like how do I receive information? How do I give information to my teammates? And then coaches trying to mediate that because people always receive um, and, and take in information in different ways, right? So someone, uh, like for example, me personally, I'm really direct and that can come across as really bad if someone's very upset about their performance, you know? So um, like it, trying to mediate that and watching players overcome that and watching how different coaches use different styles to talk to these players and come up with teams. It's like one of the most fascinating events I think to kind of be a fly on the wall for um, and it also like I assume the aim was to kind of create a bridge from solo rank to getting these guys into an environment where you can actually scout them in basically what is essentially a tryout 
um, and then see how they get along with each other and work uh, on a team in a team environment. If I can add quickly, I think like a hidden element to this that's also super important is, is, is frankly actually coaching development in our ecosystem as well. You know, I think we talk a lot about the players, but also like um, the level of sophistication of our understanding of League conceptually. Uh, I know I'm focusing on League of Legends, but also like how to how to relate to players and how to coach them and level them up. You know, it's it's something we certainly actively think about, and 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 you know, to that point, we try to like one, equip our coaches with as much information as possible. Like, you know, one of the soft data points that we use with our players is have them take uh, certain personality tests to like figure out what type of coaching methods will work best with individual players, how we might expect them to interact with each other. And I think the other part is just putting resource into developing out a staff, right? I think we have a, the base level understanding of coaching in NA so far as to like have a head coach and maybe a strategic coach and academy coach. Uh, I think at EG, we're trying to build that out significantly, like building out a whole staff with some more positional coaches, having um, having our developmental staff and our coaches work together across our three teams and ultimately level up our understanding of the game and our players, not just from team to team, but as an organization holistically. And like, hopefully, you know, our coaches move from this program and can help um, well, ideally they help us the most, but you know, if they move on to other teams that helps the whole ecosystem progress as well. Yeah. Greg, I think that's no sorry, Doug. I was going to add, I, I think this is one of the areas where the the future of, of data and analytics is honestly really going to help teams gain a competitive advantage. I mean, I think there's so much that we're going to see as again that development within the strategy and the player scouting and development of like the on the rift or on the field type um, elements, but then there's also the how do you optimize the ecosystem, the culture that surrounds a team in order to make the players ready to perform at the highest level? Because once we start getting at that, that prepping for the two best teams in the world to be able to compete, like it's going to be a game of inches really um, and making sure we can find all those optimizations. So the teams that can develop the best ways of, of training, understanding what that optimization looks like, understanding what rest looks like and recovery time um, and optimizing that entire journey leading up to like, key matches is going to be pretty key. Uh, for success in the long run. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And Greg, I, I'm really glad you brought up coaching because I think often when we talk about analytics, particularly as it relates to esports, the focus is mostly on just like talent identification and scouting. But the reality is, is that, you know, a, a significant amount of the value perhaps that can be unlocked is actually with development um, and actually with like helping players get better and just like how you play the game, right? So if we think about a lot of the revolutions in traditional sports that came about from data. Some of them are in terms of, you know, evaluating talent and roster construction, but a lot of them are just like, hey, there's actually a smarter way to play basketball um, and it's take a lot of threes, right? Um, and I suspect that we are really just scratching the surface of using data to figure out what are the better ways to play esports. Um, I'm not saying that there's like perhaps a, a hidden a hidden gem quite the same way with threes and league. Um, if I figure it out, Greg, I mean, I'm not competing against you anymore, so uh, maybe I'll tell you, but um, uh, you know, I'll probably keep it to myself. But uh, the reality is, is that I do think we're going to see folks um, get better at actually using data to train and to make decision-making about play styles um, and, and sort of impact on the development side as well. And I think that's an underrated and under-considered um, part of sort of the analytics story in esports today. I'm also glad that Greg brought up um, 
like fleshing out a coaching staff because I also think it's really important. Like I think even in traditional sports, I will bring up a Boston sports reference because that's where I'm from. Uh, if you look at like, for example, the, the Bill Belichick coaching tree and how that worked out, you just had some people who were better as like analysts only. And I think one of uh, the things that is still uh, kind of being worked out in North America, but also across other regions is the idea that if someone comes up and they're like a really good analyst, it does not necessarily mean that they're going to be a good coach. And maybe you need to find someone who is your coach, who is really good at like mediating um, conflict. And then you have an analyst like, for example, on EG, you have uh, Nasir or Empire, I believe is still his handle, right? Um, who came from Clutch also, and is just like, honestly, in my opinion, one of the better analysts that LCS has. And I think it's really good that he hasn't been forced into like a head coaching position. I don't know if that's because he doesn't want it or, or whatever. I think he could do it. But I think it's very obvious that he is like incredibly analytically minded, incredibly smart. And how, being able to just do that role has obviously served him really well because he's done incredibly well on multiple teams. Um, and so I think if, if there's any like huge blind spot in terms of like how we look at coaching and how we look at uh, analysts in, in League of Legends, it's that just because you're a good analyst does not necessarily mean you're going to be a good coach. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we often talk about on these esports panels here at Sloan is is like what you can take from traditional sports, right? And I think Emily, that that nails it on the head. Like the coaching model, the building out the staff and having that coaching tree. I think that's those are precisely some concepts that we tried to pull in directly at EG. Like 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 you mentioned, right? We're we're kind of I know Cloud Nine won uh, the coaching team of the split, but I think we're pretty blessed at EG having you know Peter Dunn be our head coach and working with all of our other coaching staff. We have support from a with an analyst like Nasser. We have developmental support with a brilliant mind like Kelsey, and we've been able to bring all these like really excellent strategic minds together at EG to to level up our players, level up the way all of them think about the game, and hopefully reap rewards for our org in the long term. So we've talked a lot about League, right? But let's talk about Valorant for a second, or just use the general, use Valorant as a stand-in for kind of general new upcoming esports. So, you know, Greg, y'all are involved in Valorant now. Tall, y'all were involved in Valorant at Immortals and have a lot of stuff. And obviously, Doug, you're extremely closely involved with Data and Valorant. Curious on y'all's thoughts on kind of the differences between... Um, existing esports let's say that have built up ecosystems and newer esports and how you're thinking about data roster building etc as as a holistic kind of uh model that's being built up yeah so oh sorry greg happy to um i can jump in quickly yeah i think like i one of the great things or interesting things about valorant right is that's so new right the game's been out like a not even a year and like the esports ecosystem in an a and across the globe is is budding but from a team building perspective and also like as an esports organization debating whether that to enter the title and like have a presence in valorant um it was an interesting exercise for us because you know the data isn't necessarily all available, right? We can see some stuff. We have a lot of we have a lot of good word of word of mouth about players and the nature of competition right now, with it being open qualifiers and with it being like a broad open ecosystem and not having franchise leagues, teams can kind of go at their own pace and enter in the way that um, they think is best 
for us at EG, like, you know, we have, we have a tech that stems from our, our League of Legends pipeline, thinking about how to develop future champions and future stars and, and build teams in our mold um, with our ethos. And sort of from that, you know, we, we've gone sort of a different direction with our Valorant roster. I think we took a, a, a bit of a pioneering approach being a tier one org to roll out a mixed gender and roster in Valorant, because we believe like, no one knows what the perfect Valorant team looks like. No one knows what franchising is going to look like. And and given the fact that you know we have some time to be developmental and take a cut and open qualifiers to to compete in our own way and bring a team up in our own way, um, we started with the base of having a captain and a really good pro to work with in Christine Potter Chi and uh, built out the rest of that roster through talent evaluation trying to build in quantifiable like evidence where we could, but ultimately like doing a lot of scouting to come up with a roster that I think fits with us, not necessarily chasing championships, but having a team that we could bring up in our way and develop in our way and impart our own values and bring together culturally and really introduce to being that esports team, kind of like three steps before where we are in terms of like a League of Legends operation in terms of maturity. And, you know, it's been really exciting and kind of heartwarming to see that team like progress because it's like their first esports experience in a new esport. And, and we're constantly learning and trying to think about how do we improve our coaching methods? How do we leverage data better if we can get our hands on more data there and how do we think about coaching in a brand new brand new sport essentially yeah so so you know ryan i'm really glad you brought up valorant for a whole host of reasons one because i think it's representative of certain esports that i think are on some level easier to think about using data than league just given the nature and structure of the games honestly um because you know valorant more round based um, it sort of has more replicable moments in a way. Like the challenge, I think, with some respects, um, is that league is perhaps a little bit more like soccer, for lack of a better, you know, comparison or analogy, where um, it's a little harder to, to use data in some ways because it's not as like the moments are not as replicable um, in the same way. And Valorant, uh, you know, in, in Counter Strike, which is obviously you know sort of the, the OG um, FPS esports title, um, they are sort of on some level a little bit more similar to baseball. I think um, from an analytics perspective, you can kind of um, have more sort of like replicable moments that you can then use data to understand performance. Um, not exactly, but but more closely. So. Um, you know, I, I'm particularly excited about data and its applications to games like Valorant. One of the things that we were interested in um, at Amoros when we were getting in um, into the sort of the Valorant scene was, you know, a lot of folks were sort of just like picking up uh, like CS rosters, basically Counter-Strike rosters and porting people over, um, which makes sense because the games have, you know, similarity in, an, in a world where it's something's new and you have an absence of data that, that can be a, an easier way to get going. Um, Personally, I, I don't think that's going to be a long-term winning strategy, and I think already that's starting to really be the case. The games are different enough, um, and you know, even historically, the way rosters were built in Counter-Strike, perhaps a little bit more by players than teams, maybe not as conducive to building the best teams in the world. Um, and so we we were really focused on running open trials and giving a shot to folks that were younger and sort of underdeveloped or overlooked. Um, and that approach actually worked really well for us at Immortals. We, we were running our roster at a pretty significantly, um, you know, relative to some of the other teams. Like, honestly, it's like a cheaper base, not because we weren't interested in investing into it, but um, we were able to put together really great teams um, with people that a lot of folks had never heard of, um, some of whom we then moved on from and then have gone to do great things on other teams as well. Um, and I think it just speaks to the fact that um, because this industry is so nascent, 
there's a lot of people that are overlooked and a lot of younger talent that is underdeveloped and underinvested into. Um, and I think that's true across a lot of esports. And so I think it's very cool, um, you know, to see what Greg's doing um, at EG and to see a lot of folks using Valorant because it's new as an actual opportunity to focus more on younger, overlooked, underdeveloped talent as opposed to just sort of porting over or continuing to invest in the same names time and time again. Um, so I'm excited to see how like that that ecosystem continues to develop. I think like a common thread that kind of came across this is that when a, a sport is this young, you need to be very open-minded, focus on learning and testing and iterating quickly in order to one, identify what's going to work, identify the right type of talent and to lay that foundation for the infrastructure. Um, from a, a Riot perspective, we've had a, a same type of mindset, but very different type of focus in that we need to develop a sport. We need to make sure that the talent pipeline is going to come down. We need to develop a broadcast and a, a narrative that works to define structure for the sport long-term to support it. Um, and so when it has come to the development of the sport, like our view is make sure the team brings as much experience into it as possible from league and from traditional sports to sit very closely with the game team itself to understand how the game is going to be played out, what's going to be meaningful, um, and how best to highlight those components. And then to be ready to uh, adapt extremely quickly. And so our, our views have been just to listen and to test this why we rolled out things like First Strike last year, the series, in order to get the community involved, to hear their thoughts, to understand what their needs were, to build that back into the game and to have our engineers from an esports perspective sit right within the game team to then say, okay, the game needs X. Let's make sure that we're bringing that out. Let's build that into the broadcast. Let's bring it to the community. Um, and let's continue to test and rapidly iterate. And I think that rapid iteration is something that's really interesting that we can do here, especially when developing a new esport. Like the again, the differences in structure that you have from that versus league allows us to move very fast. Um, and over time, I think it helps us create a really great product and stand it up quickly and then build from there. And yeah, I'm I'm curious what Emily has to say on this one because I remember like one of my favorite early pieces of esports coverage was how like some teams were starting to move away from Sage in early metas. I remember that article from Emily, but I think like one of the most exciting things about Val is like no one knows the best way to play, right? Tal alluded to we have a lot of Counter Strike players in the space, and I think um, in the early days a lot of teams are getting by with just being able to you know being able to aim and click heads, right? But you know yep. I don't think we've seen like the beautiful game of Valor Valorant incorporating all the different abilities and agents in like an optimal way. I think if I knew that, Doug and my ranked games uh, every night would probably be going a little better than they have recently. But um, I think it's exciting, right? And and like how we can get data and incorporate data in terms of like, all right, if you combo like these agents with these abilities, like your ability to take a site is like goes up by X percent. Like that's super exciting. I think like we've seen some coverage of that from a meta perspective and, and um, I'm curious to see where we go for sure. So we have uh, just about 10 minutes left here, guys. Uh, and so we should start moving to the Q&A section now. Um, so start with the question for Emily. Um, LCK and LEC players that have come to the LCS have obviously found great success, but there have been several flops as well from that pile. Um, and there haven't been many LPL players that have come to the LCS. Uh, do you think that NA teams could find success by bringing in you know, some of the star LPL players as imports to the roster? And, you know, if so, what are some of the hiccups that people should be looking for? Um, so, of course, I think that there are a ton of LPL. I mean, 
again, like China has the largest player base in the world, which just means statistically, if you're, if you're always taking like from the top, just even if the percentage is the same across all regions, the raw amount of players at the top in China is just going to be more people, right? Um, so I, I don't think it's a matter of there aren't talented people in China that people want to bring over. Um, there are a lot of uh, like visa and and banking issues uh, that I'll put put to the aside, but like I do want to mention because I think. Uh, bringing a player over from China has its own challenges that other regions don't have. Um, and then on top of it, uh, you know, the thing that no one wants to talk about, but that I'm going to have to bring up is the fact that if you're going up against some of these larger Chinese organizations with a lot more capital, uh, it's really difficult to contest. And I see, I see Greg just nodding. Said, <laughs> um, it's, it's a lot more difficult to uh, contend with what these uh, Chinese teams can give a player in their own region when they don't have to adapt to a, a completely different region. And then another layer that I do want to mention that I think some North American teams were a lot better than others, and it was pretty bad initially, to be honest, uh, when we were looking at the first kind of wave of South Korean players that came over, is that teams were really unprepared to have these players. Uh, they didn't have... Uh, like it's one thing to have a translator just for, I don't know, stage or interviews or, or scrims. It's another thing to actually have an interpreter, to have a staff that is ready to um, actually make that player feel like comfortable and overcome a lot of not just language, but cultural barriers. Um, I'll bring up uh, one time I embedded uh, with the Immortals Overwatch team. So the LA Valiant, like a, a while ago, like 2018. Um, and one of the things that really impressed me was that their interpreter was uh, like translating everything. And the reason why he did this, uh, it was Andrew Kim. The reason why he did this is because he said it was so important because naturally as a player, if like you're a South Korean player and you see two of your other uh, North American players like joking around and laughing and you don't understand what they're saying, you might automatically assume and internalize, like maybe I perform badly, maybe they're talking about me when they're talking about like a TV show they watch together or something. And so like translating even that level of, of conversation was actually really important to having um, a roster that communicated really well, despite the fact that they had, uh, you know, players from South Korea and uh, players from North America. So I think um, bridging that gap is actually so important. And while we now have the infrastructure on a lot of teams that are used to bringing in South Korean players, you would have to do that now with a Mandarin speaker, right? Uh, presumably, although there are a few players that, uh, you know, uh, come from like Cantonese speaking regions. Um, I think that's actually why one of the few teams that has brought a player over is uh, Team Solomid and, and Sword Art because uh, Peter Zong is on that team. And so he has worked in China before. He's completely fluent in Mandarin. He, I believe, knew Sword Art previously anyway. Um, and so uh, Sword Art is also uh, fluent in English, but like you, you have that bridge, you have someone to be able to bridge that gap between the team, right? And also speaking of personality and scouting, uh, Sword Art is the type of player who is very like uh, communicative anyway, you know, like he's known for being a mood maker. He's known for being very communicative. He's not someone who is a little bit like he, he's someone who's been around for a while. He's not someone who's super young and volatile and doesn't speak English and is just 
really nervous, right? Uh, and uh, anxious, and you don't have to necessarily bridge that gap. So it's a combination of like scouting, having a good staff in place, uh, all that kind of stuff. And I think um, maybe depending on the success of Sword Art, we'll see uh, if people try to consider that more. But there are a few more barriers, in my opinion, to bringing over a player from the LPL. Yeah, I, from living in China for five years, I definitely feel a lot of those barriers, um, but it's, no, it's a great answer. Uh, last question here that we have time for is for Doug. Um, Riot plays a large role in teaching viewers about analytics, right, with the on-air team broadcasting all sorts of statistics. So how do y'all at Riot decide which statistics are important for the broadcast? That's a fun one. Uh, so when I started at Riot about five years ago, uh, it was more of a, a normal practice for us to say, let's start on the air and see how it goes. Um, and you kind of like trial by fire. Um, and what we did back then was we actually sing back down and said, okay, let, let's reevaluate and put a process in place here. And uh, we started with the questions, like what are like the burning questions that either our casters or broadcast team or um, others in the community are asking that we think we can answer with data. And then we essentially went through like a research and development pipeline process. Like we essentially identify the different methods that we can approach the problem with. We test those methods, we back test against the data uh, and we evaluate like one, does this seem sound from a craft perspective? And then two, does it actually answer the question we're looking to do? And if we can pass those two bars, then what we can start to do is focus on the actual implementation. Um, and that's been pretty key for us is um, like maintaining a way of bringing that story to life and having it be consistent across 12 leagues, three international events. Um, uh, we want to make sure that a viewer that tunes in understands what that means and that the context is the same if they're watching the LCK or if they're watching the LPL or the LCS. Um, and so we've done work to build that out, to build that context, and then to take that information and try to unlock it within the community. So our team works really closely with, with the different thought leaders within the League of Legends space and to get their feedback and to then iterate over that so that uh, their feedback and thoughts are being baked right in because it's it's a constantly evolving thing, especially with a game that's consistently evolving every two weeks. Um, and so that, that's the approach that we've taken. And I think it's um, it's given us some, some really interesting insights and ways of bringing the game to life. Uh, we're hoping to take similar practices as it comes to Valor and other titles as well. Cool. Well, this is all the time we have. So, you know, thank you everyone for joining the panel. This was super interesting. I'm very excited to see where y'all take data and analytics, roster building, et cetera, in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Thank this recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.